0: Our series is seven simple prayers that can change your life. And I, I know that uh, some of you have been following along in such a specific way. You've been praying these prayers and letting us know some of the wonderful things that are happening. And I'm so grateful for that. Uh, tonight, uh, we start with our text, Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And the Bible says, It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, when Jesus stopped praying, one of his disciples came over and said, Lord, would you teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples? And I've asked you to notice this every week, and I'll ask you again tonight. We often say, well, they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. They didn't. They said, teach us to pray. It was more about watching Jesus pray and And I I know, I can just almost feel it like I was there. They watched him and it was so easy and so natural and so fulfilling, they could tell. And so they come over and it's not about his method, it's about his motivation. Lord, teach us to pray, like like you pray, like you enjoy praying. And, And so we've been talking about prayer, which is simply a conversation with God. It is a meaningful conversation. It is candid. It is transparent. It is uh, something that you just talk to God. It's sometimes voiceless. You can say a lot without saying a word. Uh, it's, it should be effortless. And if it's not effortless with you or for you, I would suggest that maybe what you're doing is you're trying to fulfill a religious obligation instead of just enjoying time in the presence of God. Jesus should be the one who gets the news first from you, even though he already knows it. It should be natural for you to say, God, you're so good. That's so wonderful. Jesus, my heart is breaking. Whatever's in your mind, when you express it to God, that's prayer. Whatever's going on in your life, when you talk to Jesus about it, When your friends are in trouble, when your family's in turmoil, and you talk to God, that's prayer. It should be just a conversation that you slide in and out of every day of your life. And we're following the Lord's Prayer. We're also following the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We're following the Lord's Prayer as it's recorded in Matthew, and we're pulling them together to uh, talk about these seven simple prayers, which actually are one-word prayers, and And uh, uh, the spirit of the teacher has come over me in this series, and so we're going to do a little bit of review, so you feel free. Uh, You can, if you roll your eyes back in your head, I'll see you, because you only have a mask up to here, so. We started here, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, our Father, which art in heaven, and we paired that with Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father, you can't get there, but by me. And so the very first prayer we encounter is the prayer of a child to their father. It's a child confessing their need. It's a child expressing that need to a father they know can meet that need. And God is your father. So if it hurts you, it hurts him. If it matters to you, it matters to him. Can anybody remember that first prayer of a child to their father? It's help. And Psalmist said, help me, O Lord. The psalmist said, God, save me. And here's how God saves you. Save me according to your mercy. Help me, God. That's a simple prayer. Anybody can pray that. And then we moved on to Matthew. uh, the, the next phrase in Matthew 6, verse 9. Hallowed be thy name. What a powerful and beautiful phrase to pray. Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he'll be saved, he'll go in and out and find pasture. When you hallow God's name, when you set it apart, when you worship his name, you do it by entering into his presence. Worship is the door to God's presence. Worship is the way you get in. Praise is the key to that lock. And the easiest, most instinctive, most natural praise and worship you could ever offer to God is simply looking around your life and your blessings and saying, thanks. That's the way we pray to God. Thanks, God. You did this for me. Thanks, God. You healed my body. Thanks, God. You saved me from an eternity being lost in a devil's hell. Thank you, God it's such a natural prayer you should be able to slip into that anytime and the great thing about saying thanks to God is this verse from the psalmist enter into his gates with thanksgiving saying thanks takes you straight into the middle of the moving manifest presence of God so any time that we're in God's presence is a good time to lift up your hands and your voice and say thanks and I think we could take a moment and just do it now and just say, thank you, God. Thank you for a good day. Thank you for enough health and strength to be here. Thank you, God, for your blessing and your provision in my family. Thank you, God. I had enough food to eat today. Thank you, God. I've got a good life. Thank you, God, for that. I worship you, God. I love you, Jesus. We move from there to the next phrase of the Lord's Prayer, which says, thy kingdom come Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And we paired that with Jesus' I am statement when he said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have in himself the light of life. Two very clear things in the New Testament. Jesus said he is the light of the world. That's easy to believe. But Jesus also said we are the light of the world because we have his spirit in us. Sometimes we feel so insignificant and inferior. Sometimes we feel like the devil is so strong and so big. But here's God's promise to you that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. So every once in a while, you just need to fulfill the prayer. We call it the prayer of the light switch. A light switch doesn't have to have any kind of authority or power itself. It just has to be connected to the power. And if you flip the light switch, the light Lights come on because it's connected to the power guess what you're connected to the power so when you say thy kingdom come and thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven God and heaven is listening to you and so that prayer just sounds like this yes. Yes to God's will. Yes to God's kingdom. Yes to God's promises. God, what you promised isn't happening right now. So I declare come, kingdom of God, and be done, will of God. Jesus, I saw this on the news. It's tragic. We need your assistance here on planet Earth. Come, kingdom of God, and be done, will of God. Jesus, I've got sickness in my body. Jesus, I've got trouble in my mind. Jesus, you're will's not being done your will says you give your beloved sleep and i've got insomnia your will says with your stripes i am healed so jesus i just want to say yes to your promises and the great thing about that is Paul wrote this, for all of the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him they are, amen. As soon as you declare the promises of God, Jesus is your guarantee that the word works. Last week, we talked about this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. It's maybe the most misunderstood and misapplied phrase in the Lord's Prayer. And of course, we paired that with Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. He that cometh unto me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. And here's the the application. Praying for our daily bread is not saying, God, give me what I want. That's not it. Daily bread is, God, give me what I need today. But it's even more than that. Praying, give us this day our daily bread, is not saying, God, I want everything on my list. Praying, give us this day our daily bread, sounds more like this. Jesus, you are at the top of my list. You are everything I need because you're the bread. And man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus, you're at the top of my list. Now let's talk about everything else on my list. So give us this day our daily bread it is not a demand for more. It is a declaration of one word. Anybody remember? Enough. Jesus, you're enough. I'm in the trial of my life, but I declare today I've got enough to get through this trial. Jesus, I don't know where I'm gonna get the money to pay the bills, but I know you can look after that because you're at the top of my list and you're enough. So now let's talk about the bills. It's not a coincidence. That we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We pray about his kingdom and his will before we start to pray about our kingdom and our will. And when you've prayed, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, it's a lot easier to say, Jesus, I just need my daily bread. And you are at the top of the list for what I need today because you are enough my goodness, you're enough. I know life throws us some curves that defy our imagination and confound our logic. But when you can look at a God like the God we serve and declare, but you are enough for this day, you are enough. I don't know about tomorrow. Many things I do not understand. There are some things today I do not like, but I know who holds tomorrow. Jesus, you are enough. You are enough. Paul said to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. So if you've ever met a person who's very godly and very grouchy at the same time, don't point, but they are around. They're godly. You know, you look at them and you say, well, they they love church and they love Jesus, but they have a perpetual frown on. They're godly, but they're grumpy. Here's the missing link, contentment. They haven't learned that Jesus is enough. They may may have been around church so long that they're kind of almost petrified Pentecostal, but they've never learned that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for me to put on a smile and worship him when I don't like what's going on in my life. I don't need to burden you with all of my stuff. I, you know, pastors, you don't just have your own stuff. You get a bunch of other people's stuff every once in a while. But you don't need to know all of that. You don't need to hear all about that. You know what you need to hear? Jesus is enough. I've got godliness But I've got contentment too. I'm content in whatever state I find myself therewith to be content. You know where Paul wrote that? From a prison cell. I'm content. How are you content in a prison cell? Godliness with contentment. You got everything you need. You've got enough. So tonight we move on. And I want to talk for a minute about something that I know absolutely nothing about which happens a lot when you preach sermons, I suppose, but pruning is a gardening practice. There, you see, I have no expertise at all. Pruning is a gardening practice. Beverly, every once in a while, tries to plant a garden. We don't have a lawn right now because we were doing some landscaping. Our lawn looks like a a sand dune right now. Uh, Actually, a mud hole. It'll look like a sand dune when it starts to dry up. Um, But every once in a while, she'll try to plant a garden. She loves the idea of gardening. And uh, and I love pruning (laughs) with a lawnmower. Because, you know, you have to mow around that stuff. It's just way easier to just drive across it. And all the men said amen. (laughs) Pruning is a gardening practice. It doesn't actually work with a lawnmower. It involves the selective removal of certain parts of a plant, such as branches or buds or roots. That's pruning. The procedure is targeted to remove what botanists and and those that love gardening, they call the, the four Ds. Pruning removes the four Ds. Plant material that is diseased, damaged, dead or deranged, that's literally what they say, deranged. And and deranged in, in the plant world means something that is agriculturally unproductive, or it's structurally unsound, or it's just aesthetically unattractive. That's deranged plant material. And so pruning removes that selectively. In general, the smaller a branch is when it's pruned, the easier it is for the tree or the plant to kind of do what your body does when you get a wound. It compartmentalizes that wound and it limits the potential for further disease or decay. And that's why it's preferable to prune early before that issue, whatever it is, can totally dominate the plant. Now, sometimes plants self-prune due to natural conditions like wind or ice or snow. That naturally natural shedding of a branch or a limb, that's called abscission, and it means to cut away. Like when a plant drops a leaf or a flower or a seed, that's abscission, it's, it's a natural kind of pruning. But the pruning I'm talking about tonight is intentional pruning. Trees or vines, for example, they are pruned to remove dead wood, they're, they're pruned to shape them, by controlling or redirecting their growth. Uh, They're pruned to improve or sustain their health. Plants or trees are pruned to reduce risk uh, of of an accident uh, from a falling branch, for example. Or even they're just pruned to increase their yield of flowers or fruit. Here's the point, because I really don't know anything at all about pruning in the natural realm. But pruning's talked about in scripture It's just called by a different term. Pruning is never done to hurt the tree or the plant. It's done to help the tree or the plant. The process appears to take something from the vine, but really it gives the vine a better future by cutting something off, by pruning something away. And of course, what I want to talk to you about is God's pruning process in your life. God's pruning process allows us to move beyond past sins and attitudes, past hurts and habits and hang-ups. It allows spiritual deadness and disease and damage to be removed from our lives. It's God's pruning process. And God's pruning shapes our future, sustains our spiritual life, it it increases our fruitfulness, and it even reduces risk to our soul. God's pruning process clears out the debris that can clutter our relationship with God and with other people too. God's pruning process, just like the plant world, it never is designed to hurt us. It's always designed to help us. And yet, many people every day resist the simple prayer that allows God to do this work in their heart. They may attend church, but they resist this simple prayer. And the reason they resist it so much is because God's pruning process appears to take something from us when really all the time he wants to give us a better future god is not interested in you living in misery until you die and then taking you to heaven and say okay you got through it here you go he wants you to have abundant life right here right now and then go to heaven for all eternity we're not supposed to be miserable we've got jesus in our lives And so we move to the next phrase of the Lord's Prayer, which is very familiar, but very difficult. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we pair that phrase with this phrase from Jesus. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman." The issue of forgiveness, brothers and sisters, touches each of us every day. Occasionally it'll be a major crisis that comes in to our lives and it forces us to choose between forgiving or holding a grudge. It could be anything. It could be an unwanted divorce. It could be an unfair termination from your job. It could be something so serious and so heart-wrenching. Sexual abuse as a child, violence directed at you in your own home. It could be so many things. There are times when God's people go through things that just confound us. How could they be going through that when they love Jesus so much? But here's one I actually think. It brings tears to my eyes. How could they be what they are today? Having lived through a hell like they lived through. And yet, here they are, devil. With their hands lifted and with their voice raised and with a smile on their face. Obviously, they they learned something about forgiveness. But if we could be honest among ourselves tonight. Most of the time, the issues we deal with that bring us face to face with forgiveness or holding a grudge are not the big issues of life. It's not those great, big, huge things. Most of the time, it's little issues. Remember when we studied the Song of Solomon the little foxes that spoil the vines, they hurt our lives. You're overlooked by one of your friends um you have a fight with your spouse never happens in pentecostal churches you 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 hear a conversation or you overhear a conversation and and there's something that somebody says and and that imagined insult they may not have even intended anything but you think they did and you hold it in your heart. Do you know things can grow out of control in the confines of your heart till they dominate your mind and control your life? And it all happens when you let something get in your heart. Maybe it's a fight. Maybe it's a a misunderstanding on your job. But, But somehow there's this underlying tension that comes into a relationship. And it goes on and on and on and on. And you've seen it and I've seen it. Sometimes... People part ways. Sometimes marriages break up. Sometimes families, there's just a division that comes and it doesn't seem like it's ever going to get repaired. And it goes on forever. Whether it is major or minor, brothers and sisters, all too often the only fix for our relationships here on earth and definitely the only fix if there's something between you and God The only fix is to pray or say one simple word, and that word is sorry. I'm sorry. It's one thing to pray I'm sorry to God who always comes down and steps in and responds by pruning away the sin in our lives. That's called repentance. I'm sorry. Please hear pastor if you don't hear anything else because you will need this. Repentance is not just what you do the first time you come to God, the first time you come to the altar, the first time you initiate your relationship with the Lord. That's not just what repentance is for. Repentance is an everyday thing for the child of God because sometimes you do things that they interfere with your relationship with God and sometimes you did it but you didn't even realize you did it and it messed something up. So every day, you need to empty your heart out. Every day, you need to say, God, if there's anything between me and you, I'm sorry, and I ask you to forgive me. Now, that's pretty easy. (laughs) Because God's invisible. And it's pretty easy to talk to Him in private. But see, Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, He makes what you pray to God conditional On what you say to others. Let me back that truck up one more time. Jesus himself makes what you say to God conditional on what you say to others. So you can't have this clean, clear relationship between you and God if you're messed up with others in your life if you're holding unforgiveness in your heart toward them, it's not just messing up you and them, it's messing up you and God. And the problem is that sometimes other people, you know, you look at them and they look pretty normal, but they are weird. (laughs) And they do something that hurts you. And then they just walk on like they didn't do anything wrong. And they are unaware, or they're unwilling, or maybe they're even unable to help you repair the damage that they caused you. And here you are hurting, and they're over in the other corner smiling. And every time they smile or laugh, it just cuts like a knife. You'd like to go over there and give, you, give them a piece of your mind. Be careful passing out pieces of your mind you could run out. For some of you, that was the word you needed, go in peace. That's exactly why one of the most basic hindrances to forgiveness is the fear of further abuse. If I just let them off the hook easily... If I don't kind of let them know how much they hurt me, they'll do it again. And that is the most, that's one of the most basic hindrances to this thing called forgiveness. We have a legitimate concern. I'm not saying it's not real. We have a legitimate concern that if we forgive that other person, that what we've actually done is we just gave them blanket permission to keep doing the same thing and hurting us over and over and over again. So our justice sense is, well, they should have to show some remorse if I'm going to forgive them. They should have to acknowledge that they did wrong if I'm going to let them go. They should have to at least say, I'm sorry too. If I'm supposed to say I'm sorry, then surely the person who wronged me, should have to say, I'm sorry. You see the conundrum? It's kind of difficult. And that's probably exactly why a guy named Peter walked up to Jesus, his master, and said, Jesus, I got a question. How often do I let my brother hurt me, sin against me, and forgive him? Now, I got a generous offer for you, Jesus. Seven times, and that's Peter's solution. I'm a good guy. I believe in you, Jesus. I follow you. I love you. I've heard you teach about forgiveness. So I'm willing to forgive, but what's the limit? I'm willing to forgive, but let's get real. How many times for the same thing? Don't look at me all religious and Pentecostal and holy because some of you have thought the same thing about somebody in your home that lives under your roof. How many times do I have to forgive for the same offense? See, Peter believed like you believe that surely there must be some parameters to forgiveness, some limit to forgiveness, if for nothing else just to keep you from being taken advantage of again in the future. Why would I ever just let them off the hook without first reminding them of their wrong, requiring some sincere, visible remorse up front, and demanding some restitution in the future for what they did? You better never do that again. Isn't there something fundamentally unfair in forgiving others When they haven't even bothered to say sorry to you. Or even worse, they haven't even noticed that they hurt you. You're crying and they're off having a good time. So last week we talked about um, give us this day our daily bread. That's maybe one of the most misapplied parts of the Lord's prayer. Uh, This week it didn't get better, it got worse. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors, this is, with no doubt, the most difficult part of the Lord's Prayer. Now, Jesus, being Jesus, he didn't argue with Peter. He just answered Peter's question by making an astounding statement. And then he segued into one of his amazing stories. So here we go. Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus said to Peter, I say not Unto thee, unto seven times. But Peter, here's what you should do. Until 70 times seven. Now, some Bible translations say it exactly like that. That's the King James Version, 70 times seven. If you've got a a new uh, modern translation, uh, I think the uh, New Living Translation does this. It'll say 77 times. So it's like, oh my goodness, we found an error in the Bible. No, you didn't. 70 times seven, we think, well, that's uh, 490. And then some translations say 77, but it's not an error. It's just a Hebrew expression that comes to us from Hebrew into Greek, into English, into whatever other language uh, the Bible's translated in. And so it's not an error. It's just the way they would express something. It isn't even a number. It's a principle. It's not a math problem, that you have to work out. Aren't you glad? It's a miraculous solution. This is what Jesus is actually saying when he says 70 times seven or 77 or however they want to translate that into English. What he's actually saying is, Peter, thank you for seven times. That's pretty generous. For the same offense in the same day, that's pretty generous. But Jesus said, Peter, no, what I'm saying is you forgive as many times as it takes until this issue is pruned out of your life. You forgive as many times as it takes until you can finally get up in the morning and go through a day and then a week and then a month. And that isn't a present reality, it's ancient history. If you're struggling with something tonight, I have good news for you. If you will follow Jesus' principle of forgiveness, there will come a day. I say it to you in Jesus' name. There will come a day when you'll be able to look back down the road at what somebody did to you, and it'll be a distant, dusty memory, and that's all it will be. It will inform you, but it will not imprison you. It will be something that's part of your past, but by the grace of God, it will... Will not be part of your present that's God's pruning process he's not trying to take something away from you he's trying to give you something by cutting that away from your life and that's why Jesus said 70 times 7 Peter you forgive as many times as it takes the reason people don't do that is because it takes more times up front it's kind of, you know, it, it, it may take a lot of times forgiving up front, but I promise you if you'll do it from your heart, obey in the word of God, it will become less and less, not only less and less times that you have to forgive, but, but less and less times that you think about it. That's the nature of forgiveness. Jesus segues immediately into this powerful story that you've all heard your Bible lovers He said, therefore, is the kingdom of heaven because of this, Peter, because of this principle of forgiveness, because of this principle of forgive as many times as it takes. Let me tell you a story. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king. And this certain king wanted to settle up the books. He wanted to take account of his servants. He wanted to balance the checkbook. And so when he begun to reckon, he calls in people that owe him uh, money. One was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, he had nothing to pay. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made, which was the king's right in that day. He owned everything. So if I want to sell you and your family and into slavery and I, I, I want uh, your land to be sold and I want all the proceeds to be put in my treasury, that's the king's right Because the servant owes him like a million dollar debt. But the servant fell down and worshiped him saying, Lord, king, have patience with me and I'll do my best to do something. I'll I'll try to pay all. Now the king is smart. He knows that that servant, if he lives two or three or 10 lifetimes, can't pay back the debt he owes. But the, the, the servant kneeling down and asking, The servant kneeling down and saying, sorry, that initiated something in the heart of the king. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and he loosed him and he forgave him the debt. Now, there's something amazing buried just beneath the surface of our English Bible. You see, our Bible is in English, not in Hebrew or even in Greek. Our Bible, uh, we we look at it and we read it, and, and we see it from a Western perspective. We live in a different hemisphere than when the Bible was written, and we also we live two thousand years later than the last parts of the Bible that were written. So sometimes we need to dig a little. That's that's the beautiful thing about the Word of God. You can read it and study it and pull things out of it. It's like a gold mine. And the Greek word that is translated forgive in your Bible, it means a release from some kind of obligation, most commonly, like in Jesus' story, a financial obligation. That's how Jesus always illustrates the concept of forgiveness. He always reaches into the world of finance, and this is his favorite story about forgiveness. There was this king, and there was a servant, and the servant owed him a soul-crushing debt that he could never repay. But the servant said, I'm sorry. And the king, in his mercy, forgave the servant and let him walk out free. And when the Greek language tries to put Jesus' message and his story into a word, forgive, It has the sense of a financial transaction where the king literally takes the debt owed by the servant and tears it up and throws it away. That's how Jesus always illustrated forgiveness. Now, the king had every right to be repaid. That was his money that had been squandered or wasted. And that servant had an obligation to pay that debt. He was the guilty party. The king was the innocent party. But the fact of the matter is that servant didn't have near enough resources to pay his debt. And so the king did something that Jesus wants you to do, believe it or not. The king chose, I'm going to cover the loss myself. I'm going to take the loss myself. And I'm going to forever let that servant walk out free. That, brothers and sisters, is forgiveness. I am convinced the more I read the New Testament that the reason Jesus used a financial uh, word with a financial implication to illustrate forgiveness is because when you have a debt, it's just either you're in the red or you're in the black. It's not emotional. It's just the facts. It's just the cold, hard numbers. You owe this. There's no wiggle room. You can't get out from under it. It's a debt that you owe. Jesus illustrates forgiveness that way. Not that you have to feel a certain way to forgive. Not that you have to have a sense of peace about it. Not that you have to be calm about it or or that you never will remember it again. Nothing uh, like that has anything to do with forgiveness. Here's how Jesus, your Lord and Master, always teaches forgiveness. You know they should pay you back. You know they should make it right. You know they owe you, and you know you did nothing wrong, but guess what? Like your Lord and Master, you just tear up the debt and throw it away and say, I forgive. Now that's a tall order for a human being. That king, he could have made a trip every single day to that prison. He could have called in the guards and said, beat him again, whip him again, hurt him again. He could have spent time every week devising all sorts of penalties or even torture. He was the king. He could do what he wanted. He could have made sure that that servant realized the full weight of his offense and suffered for years for his wrong. He could have paid a monthly visit to the royal treasurer. Did he pay anything yet? Did his family pay anything yet? Are you sure we have garnished the wife's wages? And and, and, and are we getting anything back on our account? The king could have done all of that. He could have even published a decree. Throughout his entire kingdom, he could have told everybody what that servant did to him. He could have let everybody know about the situation. He could have humiliated that servant and made him grovel in front of everybody in the whole kingdom. Because he had the power. He was the king. He was, in, he was the one that had been wronged. He was the innocent party. He had all of those options at his fingertips. And he would have been totally justified. And that's where the rubber always meets the road in our relationships with one another. When you feel totally justified to hang on to the grudge. But your Lord loves you so much. He said, "Mm -mm. no, 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 no. I want to cut that off. You say, but you're taking something away. You're taking away my right to retaliate. Yes, I am. I'm gonna cut that off. I'm not trying to take something from you, I'm trying to give you something for your future. I'm not trying to hurt you, I'm trying to help you. It's his pruning process. Now, if you think about it and you're honest about it, realistically, what alternative to forgiveness did that king have anyway? He didn't have to release the servant. But, but think, would that servant's imprisonment have helped the king? Would it have resulted in even one dollar being returned to the royal treasury? Not likely. Was there any advantage to be gained by demanding that that servant remain behind bars and be punished for the rest of his life? When you think about it, there was no advantage to be gained by the king, except All he would do is focus his mind on the wrong that had been done. But the king in Jesus' story was smart enough to realize two things. First of all, I hold in my hand an uncollectible debt. No matter how many years that servant goes to prison, this debt is uncollectible. No matter how many years that servant is punished or how much he's humiliated, I'm holding in my hand an uncollectible debt. Many people, perhaps some of you, perhaps somebody watching online, you struggle, maybe you've struggled for years with offering forgiveness to someone and you don't realize that you're holding an uncollectible debt. You mistakenly believe that there's some payment, some penalty that you can extract from your offender that will compensate for your loss and make you feel better. And you want justice. That's what you want because your sense of fairness has been injured. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, let's be real. Very few people would ever have the resources to pay you back For the hurts you've experienced, even at their hands. What could they do? So they talked about you five years ago. And it hurt you. And somebody else heard that and carried it and spread it. And you feel embarrassed and humiliated. And it wasn't even true, but they did it against you. Realistically, how could they pay you back for that? You really want them to go around to every person they talk to and every person that person talked to and bring it all up again and dredge it all up again in some misguided attempt to say, I'm sorry, you really want that? That just resurfaces the hurt all over again. We say this to couples so often because you know, our 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 world they, they pollute us with ideas that you can fall out of love. You can't fall out of love. Any more than you can fall into love. You can take that one to the bank. Oh, we fell in love. If you did it right, you fell in like first. And then you worked on love and you're still working on it if you're married to them. Because love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. And in the very same way, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. Many people struggle with forgiveness. They have no idea that what they're holding in their hand, what they're chained, what's chained up in their heart, and they want repayment and they want justice and they want fairness. They have no idea. They are holding an uncollectible debt. There's no doubt in a congregation our size that there have been people who, they were violated in some way when they were little children. And they bear the scars to this day. And we don't say stuff like that very often because we know that just mentioning that brings back sights and sounds and experiences and torment to their mind. So we don't refer to that all the time. But it's true. And it happens. And yes, even in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, that happens. But please hear me. For some of you, that person, they're distant from you. What could they ever do to pay you back for that? terrible thing they did to you. And for some of you, they're not even on this planet anymore. They died, but you're still tied up in your heart because of what they did. So now it's not hurting them. It's hurting you. Jesus doesn't tell you to forgive them so they get off the hook. He tells you to forgive them so you can get off the hook. His pruning process feels like it's taking something from you. But really, it's giving something to you. Very few people on this planet actually have the resources to pay for their offenses. And it happens with couples. They don't fall out of love. They fall out of forgiveness. They start racking up the the account You did this, you said this. And if they ever do have a tense moment or a tough conversation, some couples reach back years in their relationship and bring up stuff. If you're doing that, stop it in Jesus' name. You are poisoning your relationship. You are hurting your marriage. You are uh, injuring your family. Some people, they do it all the time. They can't ever talk about the issue today because they can't resist The temptation to go back five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago and dredge something up that they still feel in their heart against somebody. And sometimes it's not couples, it's friends. It's people you know. The king was smart enough to know that he was holding an uncollectible debt in his hand. And the only option is to tear it up and move on. I say to you in Jesus' name, sometimes the only option to free your mind and your heart is tear it up and move on. You say, but I can't forget. Jesus didn't ask you to forget. But I don't have peace. He never asked you to have peace about forgiving somebody. But, but I don't feel good about it. He never asked you to feel good. That's why he used a word that was tied to the world of finance. It's just black and white. It's just numbers in columns. It just makes sense. You're never going to get repaid, so the best thing you can do for your life is tear it up and walk on. Tear it up and move on. Tear it up and get beyond it. That, brothers and sisters, is forgiveness. Not what you feel. That has nothing to do with forgiveness. And if you'll do what Jesus said, and you'll do it in Jesus' name, Jesus will help you move beyond what is tormenting you. Sometimes you have to say, but wait a minute, Pastor, I'm the innocent one here. Wait a minute, they did it to me. Sometimes you have to say, I'm sorry it happened, but I'm moving on. I'm sorry it happened, but I'm moving on. That king was smart enough to realize two things. Number one, I'm holding an uncollectible debt. And number two, wait a minute. There's a servant in the debtor's prison. He owes me. I can put him there. I can keep him there. I can torture him and humiliate him there. But wait a minute. I'm a king. I've got a kingdom to run here. The last thing I need as a king is to be fixated on some old debt from years ago from some little guy that couldn't pay me back if he lived 10 lifetimes. Why would I fixate on that when I've got a king kingdom to run? I'm a king. I've got responsibilities. Sometimes the only sensible option is to cut your losses instead of being preoccupied If it hasn't got fixed yet, it's not going to get fixed. Just get it out of your system. I'm sorry it happened and move past it. Every one of us, it's not just you. Every one of us are going to have situations arise in life where we are much more concerned about someone's obligation to us than they are concerned about it. They're the one that should be concerned about it. They're the one that should be saying, I'm sorry, but they're not concerned about it in the least. And precious godly people spend years letting people live in your brain and take up real estate in your mind and in your memory and you just need to cut your losses and say I don't know why they did that but Jesus you're enough for me so I'm just going to say I'm sorry it happened and by the grace of God tomorrow is a new day and I am not going to be bound by something that happened way off in my past. If you hold on offenses and hurts, if you hold on to old grievances and wounds, what you do is you become an emotional hostage to your offender. It's especially awful when you see them all the time. They're part of your family. They're part of your church family. They're part of your friend group. They're, they're, They're part of your work environment. It's especially awful when you see them all the time. So you become an emotional hostage and every day that you live, you just get hit again with the whole situation. And you can say, well, they haven't said, I'm sorry yet. But see, Jesus never put the responsibility on them. <laughs> Do you know what Jesus actually said? I, I, I didn't put, I looked at it and I had it and then I, I, I but I, I got to say it. Jesus actually said this. If you're worshiping And you're bringing your gift to the altar. You're worshiping in God's presence. And you remember that someone did something against you. Well, you make a phone call. You demand they come to the altar. No. He said, you leave your worship. You leave your gift. You leave the altar. You go to them. Wait a minute. They did wrong. No, you go to them. Because I care about you. You go to them. And you make it right and then you come back and worship. Now I know that sometimes life is just this way that you can't go and have a conversation with somebody. They may not even be living anymore. But the principle's still the same. Before you come and bring your tainted worship to God, make sure you pray this prayer. God, I'm sorry for holding that in my heart. And I'm sorry that happened, but I refuse to be bound by that anymore that king he was smart enough to say I'm a king I got a kingdom I can't mess with that guess what you are a royal priesthood (laughs) you're God's people you're you're a chosen generation you you are kings and priests unto God we got a kingdom to build here we've got God's kingdom to be involved in The last thing we need is a bunch of royal people with royal blood flowing in their veins trying to serve God and being bound by something that happened to them 15 years ago. That's the last thing we need. Sometimes you have to say, I'm sorry it happened, and you just move on. The best reason to forgive is not what it does for them. It's what it does for you. You have better things to do with your life then rehash and rehearse old wounds and hurts and grievances. And because that king, he had enough in him to think and to think clearly, he chose to do the right thing. You say, well, that's nice, but what's that have to do with the Lord's Prayer? Oh, it has a lot to do with the Lord's Prayer. Because when you choose to forgive others, then... You have a right to ask God to forgive you. Letting them go free allows you to go free. Allowing God to prune those sins and attitudes and hurts and habits and hang-ups out of your life, it sets you free from spiritual deadness and spiritual disease and spiritual damage. Remember, Jesus said emphatically... That what you pray to God is conditional on what you say to others. This is the only phrase of the Lord's Prayer that has a PS attached to it. Immediately after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's what Jesus said. If you forgive them, I'll forgive you. Now, I think we can answer this safely. Is there anybody in here that knows that you need to be forgiven by God? So then it's your responsibility to forgive others who have hurt you. That's what follows the Lord's prayer. Do you know what follows Jesus' I am statement about being the vine? Here's what follows that statement. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, God takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it. He prunes it. He trims it. He cuts off dead things and he cuts off damaged and diseased parts. He prunes it. He purges it. Why? So it'll hurt you? No. So it will bring forth more fruit. Saying sorry shapes your future and sustains your spiritual life and increases your fruitfulness and it reduces the risk to your soul. Saying sorry clears the debris that can clutter our relationship with God and our relationships with others. Saying sorry never hurts you. It always helps you. And yet many people, even Christian people, resist this simple one-word prayer that would allow Jesus to do such a great work in their heart. And you know why they resist it? Because saying sorry appears to take something from you. When all the time, saying sorry actually lets Jesus give you a better future. Sorry. It should be common on your lips. It should be a prayer that you regularly pray to Jesus. But that's not enough on this one. Jesus himself added a PS on the end of the Lord's Prayer and said, by the way, that phrase, that clause, that doesn't work. Unless you forgive others. Because if you won't let others go. And you hold that grievance and that offense in your heart. You've clogged the pathway where I want to move to offer you my forgiveness. Jesus put the postscript there. Not me. This clause doesn't work. It's simple. But my goodness, it has long-reaching, far-ranging implications. Now, we're not going to end this Bible study by saying that everybody that needs to forgive somebody, would you raise your hand? I've been pastoring way too long to know how that turned out. (laughs) Most people would slink out of the door or not respond. And then there's always perhaps a few people that they just really like drama and trauma and it could be a big scene. So I'm not going to do either one. But I'm dead serious about this. Every marriage goes through troubled times. Every parent-child relationship goes through tense times. Every friendship goes through times when it's just not working right. And the best thing you can do for any earthly relationship is the same thing that clears the air in your relationship with Jesus. I'm sorry. You say, but I'm not the one that's wrong. Number one, you're not totally 100% sure of that. And number two, even if you are the one that's innocent, even if you are the one that was wronged and you're totally free of any guilt, Jesus still said, before you come and worship me, love that person enough to go and make it right. Don't demand that they give you some great apology. You just go to them and say, I'm really sorry it feels this way. And I'm really sorry for anything that's going on. Please forgive me. You say, I don't want to say, please forgive me. I didn't do anything to them. Jesus told you to. He said, you go say sorry. And watch what he will do to heal your heart and your hurts. That's amazing. One last thing, just because I need to. You, you don't apologize to someone. You don't say sorry to someone by saying you. It's not an apology when, when you say, I'm sorry for what you did. And I'm sorry for how you hurt me. And you rehearse the whole thing all over again. Are you insane? That's not an apology. That's a rebuke. Don't do that. You just go to them with love and with prayer. And say, I'm so sorry this happened, but I really love you and I really need you and I I don't want this between us. And you say, I'm sorry. You don't mention them. I'm sorry. Because I want to be clear between me and God. And I want to be clear between me and you. Because that's how this works. It's a simple prayer, but it will change your life. I promise it will change your life. Would you lift up your hands in the presence of God? And would you just begin to worship Jesus in this room? There there is a freedom in forgiveness that that you can tap into that will change you. And and I'll tell you, and I'm not asking anybody to confess anything out loud, but I can tell from the the, kind of the low murmur that that this is a tough one. This is probably the most difficult part of the Lord's Prayer. But I wish you'd just lift up your voice anyway and just say, God, I want to pray every part of your prayer. I want to do everything that you ask me. I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need your strength. You're going to have to enable me. I don't feel capable. My emotions are are raw on this. But Jesus, I just want to be clear. I just want to be clean. And I just want to be free. Oh, pray, church, for a minute, because there's somebody at home that they were sitting in their house listening to this, and they're all alone, but you know that God's talking to you. And if you just let it go, and if you just forgive them, Jesus would free you in such a way that it'll give you your joy back, and it'll give you your peace back. And so you really need to grapple with this. Church, I need you to stand to your feet, let your hands keep going, and then let your voice keep going beyond that. There just needs to be an outburst of prayer. I'm not asking for you to go to anybody. You do that later. You do that after you've talked to Jesus about it. I'm just asking for you to talk to him and say, God, I need you to forgive me, so help me to forgive everybody else. I need it to be clean between me and you, so let it be clear between me and everybody else. If you're in a bubble with somebody, I want you to take them by the hand right now and I want you to lift every hand that you can in this building right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for our church family, and I thank you for every family that is part of our church family. I thank you for every friendship that dates back maybe many years, but God, I know the tactic of the enemy. He's always trying to bring division and disunity. So Jesus, what we choose to do, not because we feel it, not because it's easy, but because you said it, we choose to forgive. We choose to let it go. We choose to move beyond. We choose to tear up the debt. Set us free from old hurts. Set us free from old wounds. Set us free from situations and conversations that injured us. And let my people go. Let them go out of unforgiveness. Let them go out of mental distraction. Let them go out of hang-ups and hurts that are in their heart. Let my people go in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I worship you, God. I worship you, God. I worship you, God. Thank you for allowing pastor to just kind of deliver what the Lord gave me and to unburden my heart. Like every other prayer we've talked about in this series, if you will pray it, God will meet you in it. Sometimes you need to pray it to Him, but on this one, this is the one Jesus said, oh, this one doesn't just work that way. It works this way. Thank you for being part of Bible study. It is such a high honor and a great privilege to teach you the Word of God. I love you. In Jesus' name, be blessed.